Eighties Octopus. So interview number four. This is one I, I, I've wanted for a while because I knew this is a man that had been part of the story from the beginning and all the way through the 80s. That's David Bates, the a and man. He was the record company guy and I think he was the guy that had the biggest influence on Kurt Rowland, both positive and negative at times throughout the 80s. And it's a very honest interview. I learned a lot, it's very entertaining. Uh, and yeah, we spoke for nearly three hours, so I've broken it down. I edited it, edited it into two parts. This is the first part. And uh, yeah, look out for the pink fluorescent duck. <laughs> and I'll see you on the other side. The interview starts now. So, how are you? Oh, well, I had my jab last week. You had a, oh, you had your jab? Yeah. The first one or the second one? First one. What everyone says is true. Boy, do you, it, it's like having really bad flu for about 48 hours. Yeah, I mean, on and off. You sleep really well afterwards, by the way. That, and, and that's the other common thing everyone says, you know, you, you, you sleep really well for a few days. So I'm enjoying that bit. And it's just like, you know, let's keep away from anything bad for the next 21 days, get, you know, and then we're okay for a bit. And then 10 weeks and we get the next one. It would doubly suck to get it now, wouldn't it? It would doubly suck to get it. <laughs> to get the side effects and then still get it. Okay, well, let's start talking to yeah. you, shall we? Yeah. The COVID hour is finished. Okay, so start at the very beginning. I did try and get a, um, your story in the 80s with Tears of Fears from, from Soup to Nuts, really, from the very beginning. And you were there at the very beginning. So, like, apart from Kurt and Rowan, you're the only person, really, that can say you were there throughout. Is that fair to say? Yeah. So the story is... Um, when when I first started doing A&R, which was in like 75, 76, it was, it was really the end of one era and the start of the next era. So the era that was ending was the 60s era. And the music industry from the 30s onwards has always sort of changed and evolved slowly. And the 60s era was very much still a lot of the Tin Pan Alley methods were still being used so the the idea of actually having a scout to go out and look at bands was new in a lot of ways and that's what i was that was my first job i was brought in to be an you know, r scout and a lot of the guys that were still at the record company had been big 60s icons so the guy called johnny franz who used to look after dusty springfield and scott walker and a whole load of you know schlotzy pop acts peters and lee and things like that he was their a&R man but he was also their producer and he also was very clever he used to write the b-side so he got a lot of money he was still there johnny he, he was a lovely guy but he must have been in his 70s and the guy that i worked for was nigel grange and he was like the youngest kid on the block and he eventually became head of A&R, and i was really his scout but um and he's the guy that was looking after thin lizzy but he also he, he discovered and signed the boomtown rats and a, a whole load of and, and sinead o'connor and a whole load of people and then I came in. So the system was I had, I'd have to go out scouting for bands at night and I would have to listen to demos, which came in the form of a cassette. And I was had to sit in on meetings with where Nigel would have appointments with people who wanted to play stuff, which included publishers. So publishers would send a, a songman to come round. And the songman would come in and play you six or seven of the songs that they were working on uh, for your artists, should you be interested. Now, this is a bizarre world when we talk about it now in uh, 2021. But that was a leftover pretty much from the sort of 40s, 50s, 60s. These well, guys did artists, exist. Like coming, some people coming in to sell their songs rather than to sell themselves as an artist. Yeah, well, it wasn't even their songs. I mean, they worked for a company that had these songs. Oh, right. They were given a list of names of appointments they had to go, and they had a, a list, a little sort of tick list. And so you'd go and see uh, Nigel and David, and you'll play six songs, and you'll tell us what how it went. So off you come, and he arrives, and he plays you the six songs, and that's it. Nigel eventually left, and he ran his own label, which he took the Boomtown Rats and Sinead O'Connor and everyone with him. And I was still left as a scout. And then over the years, I, I, I by 78, 79, I discovered um, and signed Def Leppard. And I'd actually signed Paul Carrick, funny enough, as he'd left Ace. I signed a few other things. So I'd done that. And 
I found a band called Dalek I Love You, which is from Liverpool. And Dalek, I did play a, quite a, a key part as much as an influence and an inspiration for Tears. And Dalek I Love You were actually one of the very first synth bands in, in this country. So I signed them and then... So wait, so wait, was Chris Hughes involved with them at that stage? Yeah, uh, I brought yeah. Chris involved because Chris and I had been together um, as friends, as kids. Um, when I started working uh, at Phonogram, I had access to the um, studios, which they had their own studios underneath, which is where Steve Lillywhite was a trainee. So, yeah, I got Chris involved with the Dalek I Love You, and we did the recordings and produced it. And then along the way, Dalek I didn't happen, but the whole notion, the idea of a synth band still appealed to me. And in fact, even if you check out the first Def Leppard album, you'll find that Chris Hughes is credited as playing synthesizer on the first Def Leppard album because they needed this little riff. So was Teardrop Explodes around this time as well? or was Yeah, that... I, I did the Teardrops. I'd signed the Teardrops. Uh, and they were going through some problems. Julian was having real difficulty dealing with fame and dealing with success and the fact there was a lot of demands that went along with that. And that was really a troublesome. It was also troublesome because he and I shared a flat. <laughs> so it was That's quite interesting. really problematic. <laughs> and around this time... Going back to the original story, a guy called Les Reed, who used to work for Tony Hatch's company, M&M, Mr. and Mrs. Publishing, came to see me with his six cassettes one lunchtime. And I went through the six cassettes uh, as I would normally do. And it's like, well, that one's not for me. And sorry, Les, that one's not for me. And, and you know, obviously these songs aren't going to be for Def Leppard. They're not going to be for Teardrop Explodes. They wouldn't have been for Dalek, I Love You. They wouldn't have been for anybody, really. But, yeah, OK. Thank you very much, Les. See you in six months' time. And he, off he went down the corridor and he got as far as the lift. And I suddenly thought, that middle cassette. I ran after him and he was literally in the lift. Doors about to close. Burst through and said, give me that middle cassette. I just want to listen to it. So he gave me the middle cassette and I went back and, a couple of days later, I played it again and I thought, yeah, this is great. I don't need the songs for anybody else, but what I do like is what these guys are doing. So I called him up and said, is this a band? And he went, no, not really. It's two guys that were in a band called Graduate and they're just writing at the moment. I said, well, hmm. And he said, well, it could be a band if you want. I said, well, I do want. So we arranged for me to come down to Bath to meet with them and I wanted to go into the studio and listen to the multi-track and possibly remix it or do something. So I came down and it was arranged we would go uh, to this studio out in just outside of Bath. Uh, and when I got there, there was a fairly large house and the, the side there was what would have been the stables or barn or whatever had been converted into a studio. And that's when I met David Lord, who had done the first track, which was Suffer the Children. And I met Roland and Kurt for the first time. Um, and I knew that they were going to be young. And I think they were, I th um, I'm going to guess they were 17. They might have been 18, but they were, they were young, not as young as Def Leppard, who were 15, 16 and 17 when I met them. So, it, they, but they were young. We put the track up and then suddenly the door opened up and Peter Gabriel walked in and it was oh my god because Peter was one of my heroes I never liked uh, Genesis but I loved what he was doing as a solo artist and it was like oh my god this is amazing and, and he was being super friendly and super uh, super helpful and that's when it transpired it was his studio and obviously David worked with Peter so we did a quick remix of of Suffer the Children and that was that and I went back to the office the next day I went to see my boss and said, I want, I think I want to sign these guys. And in those days, again, it's different from today, although not that different now. <laughs> you could do singles deals, which I guess you can do again now, singles deals. Uh, there was a period of time when that was not the norm, but it was a, it was a normal thing from pretty much the 40s onwards, where you'd just sign an artist for one track, one single or two singles, whatever. And I signed them for three singles. And the first single was going to be Suffer the Children. So it was three singles with the options for albums and, and everything else. And I was told, because this was under a new regime, you better get this right. You know, it's OK. You can do a single or two and lose a bit of money. But, you know, you 
you've got to be sure that you, you know this this is really worth doing are you sure you want to do this yeah yeah definitely want to do it so we did the first single which got a okay to average reviews in in the papers john peel funnily enough picked up on it and played it a couple of times so nothing really happened what made you choose that particular song as the single because there was three tracks isn't there yeah as much as anything i thought it was i thought it was a single uh, and the other tracks was i think it was watch me bleed and um but Pell shelter was in a very it was in a demo form, not in any form. Suffer the Children, David had worked on it, so it was it was in a recorded form. So that was the only one that was really produced then to accept Yeah, it. so that was ready to go. So we did that, and then um, I thought it'd be an idea to get hold of, uh, I think it was Mike Howlett, to produce the second one, which was Pearl Shelter, because Mike had obviously worked with OMD and a whole bunch of other people, and I figured he would get the synthesizer aspect of it all, which... It was a good single, I thought at the time. Obviously, Roland and Kurt and Mike didn't get on and, and they didn't want to work again with each other. But I got the second single. Um, what was the issue with Mike Howlett? Was it just um, different styles or? I think it was it, it wasn't it wasn't as good as we had hoped. It was OK. It was fine. And, and uh, one of those things where you go, well, I could, you know, tear this up and start again um, or. No, no, this will be fine. You know, this it'll be okay. It's a single, you know, development single. Let's see how we go. Um, so we did put it out, uh, and again, absolutely met with no interest whatsoever. There was no promo videos, no. right? So was there no budget? There was a, this is the, in the days before, you know, before really promos had started. Right. Uh, well, I mean, they they were promos, but they, but for this was a singles deal, and it just wasn't deemed that they would spend the money on that unless there was some kind of traction and there was none. So then I thought, okay, I'll turn to Chris because maybe we can we can do this rather than put this out to other people. And that's when Chris got involved and he wanted to redo Pell Shelter because he didn't think it was right. And he was doing, hmm, did three altogether. I can't remember the other ones, but he was going to do a B. So he was going to do Pell Shelter something else. What was the other one? The Prisoner? It might have been. But no, he's another potential A side. And then we we're going to do some B sides. And one of them, obviously, then um, they were doing up at um, the Pink Floyd Studios, Britannia Row. It was it was just a okay little studio up in North London. It wasn't any big flash thing or anything. And then I got a phone call from Chris and said, "You better come up here. There's something you you got here." And I got up there and he played the B side. He played. Suffer the children, and he played the B side, which was Mad World, and I heard it and just went, "Fuck, that's the A side." So that was genuinely going to be a B side. So I was genuinely going to be a B side. That was recorded. When you bring that song, there's no way you're going to think that's a B side. There was no way I thought that was going to be a B side. But he did when you wrote it. Roland. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, both of them. They they thought it was nothing more than just some sort of oddball. You know, you got the prisoner, you got Mad World. They're B sides. Can I just backtrack um, a little bit before you carry on? Because there's a couple of questions I want to ask. So generally speaking, when it comes to signing bands, yeah, you said it's going to be you get given demos or you go and see them live. What was the ratio between signing a band based on demos and signing them based on seeing them live? Would it tend to be one more than the other? At that moment in time, you you tended to sign more live bands than you would because you could see it right. even rehearsal or at a gig. You know, Def Leppard I saw at the Retford Porter House, then at the Rock Garden in Middlesbrough, and then I saw them, you know, a number of times. Dalek, I Love You didn't play live, but they could set it up and play in a studio. So, yeah, it was normally live bands, but you could take them from demos. But Tears for Fears was from the demo. What was it in the demo you heard that made you think, right, this is something different, this is something interesting. I, I, want I to- really like the voices and I like the songs. And I liked the idea because it was an idea. It wasn't fully flushed out and it just appealed. Punk bands were over. Rock bands were getting an absolute battering at that time. New Wave was pretty much a burnt out concept. It was going into another phase. And I just thought this sounded like the future to me. The next direction. Yeah. Okay, so we get to Mad World, which is the third single. So you had a three-single deal. So if this had flopped, would that have been it for Tears Fears at that record company? Well, we got to the third single, and I said I wanted to exercise the album option. 
this is before the single had come out. And I was told that that was a very unnecessary call to make. Why not wait until we see how the third single goes? And I said, no, I think this is, I think this band's exciting. And I really want to make an album with them, not just put out singles. And for my own career, I was advised that it wasn't a good move because to exercise the album, uh, it was probably going to cost £30,000 or £60,000 plus, you know, with the recording and everything. So that's like, you don't really want to do that. Sorry, as an A&R man, do you get a budget to work with? You have to be within, like, for the year. So, like, if you spend so much on one act... Really, I was still being viewed, even though Def Leppard were, at this point in time, they'd done a little bit in the UK, but they'd started a great buzz in America. But the, it wasn't enough for anyone to be convinced that I knew what the fuck I was doing. The teardrops had been had had hits and they'd been successful, but it still wasn't enough for anyone to believe that I knew what I was doing. So there was this, you know, are you, we had a problem. We had a managing director at that time who was absolutely from another era, the one that had passed, but he hadn't. Mm. So we had a problem from with it, with the person who was head of the company who just didn't, there was a time, and I'll jump back, there was a time when I was working with a guy called Johnny and he'd come in as the A&R, as an A&R manager. And Johnny was was my running partner. He was, you know, senior to me. Um, and he and I went to see lots of bands together and we went to see a band in uh, Essex and we came back and went, this is like the new Rolling Stones. This is the new Rolling Stones for this generation, right? And we want to sign this band definitely want to sign this band and they saw pictures of the band and because they had swastikas on their arm and punk haircuts and everything else they said we're not signing any nazis here and we were going no no you're not getting it it's just like you know it's a momentary thing ignore the ignore, ignore all that stuff it's irrelevant really listen to the music and we're telling you no and then the meeting was called and the entire company was brought in and we were pretty much john and i were put on under the spotlight and it was made clear to the entire company no nazis or no neo-nazi groups were ever going to be signed to this good christian company it's not good policy isn't it generally speaking but there are exceptions (laughs) when it's the clash yeah (laughs) so the same guy johnny uh, uh, and this was the same leaders by the way and yeah. when Johnny found a band from South London that were playing Americana and Cajun music, and he, he was in love with them, and he just desperately wanted to sign them. And he said, oh, we're going to go to this committee meeting, and, and I want you, I'm going to say, I think we can sell 30,000 albums, which would cover the signing cost. But I want you to say, no, 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 no. I think 45,000, 60,000. And then I can say, no, I think you're exaggerating. Maybe 30, 35,000. We can have a bit of a row and then, you know, we'll turn to them. So this is exactly what we did. We did this whole thing in front of the managing director, the, the, the head of legal, the head of finance and everything. And we did this whole routine. And anyway, Johnny got to sign his band. He did get to get them. And he said, no, I, I think, you know, trust me, 35,000, 40,000, maybe 40,000. But I really do believe it. That was dire straits. Wow. But the hoops we had to go to get right. to get Johnny to be able to sign those. So it's all my dire straits and brothers and arms. As as the ANR, do you are you on a percentage of an album sale or is it no. a flat fee? No. Oh. I mean, you know, we would all be living in luxury if that was the case. So there's no finders fee. You just you get your job. This is the thing. You know, you can have a hit, but you're only as good as your last hit. In other words, okay, boy, what you got for me now? But you signed dire straits. How much money have you generated? Not me. Johnny signed Dire Straits. Saying you, if you're the person that signed Dire Straits, how much money have you generated? That must buy you a lot of uh, leeway then for the next couple of years, or is it just literally if the next album artists a flop? Well, then Johnny put- made a very, very clever move. He he decided um, because it was enormous and the thing was going. It was and he was not enjoying the whole thing. He loved the success, loved the band, and the band absolutely adored him. Um, he decided that's it. I'm off to America, and he went to go and work in America where he found a, a, a band that was just, you know, the one thing you wouldn't be signing at this moment in time in the in the, in the the early 80s, he found this band that was like a metal band. And you go, what the hell would you want to do that for? And he said, no, I'm telling you, man, this is going to be huge. Anyway, the, the company didn't sign them, and it was Metallica. Oh, God. So the record companies generally are always a bit behind the curve. Always. Job to pull them dragging into the, the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Record companies are generally behind the curve. Not, yeah. you know, it's 
sometimes it's because of who's at the top or it's because of who's there but it it's very difficult i mean it, the great thing about the independent labels and everything was you could operate and just go i don't care i'm just going to put this out and do it and therefore you were you were on the curve you were in front because you were doing things record companies it's very hard for a record company to go look i think this is what's going to happen so saying something like i think uh, tears for fears are the next sound the next thing is like well how the hell do you know but johnny friends going back to the old boy he once said to me he says just remember this it's like a clock really he goes yeah so today we're at 12 o'clock and as the clock goes round it keeps going round and things keep changing and keep moving eventually it'll come back to 12 o'clock you've just got to sometimes be ahead of the clock but no at some point it's going to come back to the clock which actually works out mm. because you can actually try and be ahead of something i think okay everything currently is people wearing gum boots and jumping up and down in the air that's what today's vibe is well that's not necessarily going to be tomorrow's vibe so i can actually it took a long time to realize you don't worry about the clock what you do is you worry about whether it's good enough and eventually it may fall into place yeah yeah because you wouldn't say dire straits were necessarily kind of of the future they're very traditional in many ways as a band but the quality was completely there. traditional yeah yeah so yeah going back to tears it got to this bit where I wanted to make an album because I just knew there was more to come from them. And if we had a whole album's worth of material, we may be able to do more with it than just trying to, you know, knock down the walls with just one track at a time. That maybe we could build up something because they weren't even really a band at that point. So at what point were they Tears for Fears when you signed them? Yeah, they were Tears for Fears when I signed them. They were. Yeah. But it was just the two. It was no, there was no band. I mean, yeah. they eventually developed into a band. There was no touring outfit. They'd never toured. Yeah. So all of this they had to learn. So I decided we we're going to make an album and Chris was going to make the album with them and we were going to put out this single and meanwhile we would get on with making the album so this is what happened there was a guy called bob fisher who was the marketing guy he was one of the marketing people and he and he and i worked together on the teardrops we'd worked together on a few things and i told him about tears he understood what the whole thing was and he said okay well we've got a problem name's quite long doesn't really mean anything to most people but we need to get noticed so we I played him the single Mad World and he went, mm, Mad World, okay, right, mm, leave it with me. So about a week later, I came, uh, I, he called me up to his office and I walked in and we worked in New Bond Street at the time and there was, it was a 60s sort of building. So it wasn't, you know, big old grand tall ceilings. They're about 12 foot, maybe 14 foot tall, you know, modern, normal sort of size for that sort of thing. And um, I walked in and there was this mock-up he'd done and it was a poster and it was from the ceiling so 12 foot to the ground and about mm, four or five foot wide maybe five foot wide and it was a pink fluorescent pink duck <laughs> okay and i'm looking at him and what the fuck is that and he goes mad isn't it <laughs> okay he said i'm gonna fly post this and all the main arteries in and out of London. I'm going to fly post a 12, 14 foot by six foot wide fly poster of a pink duck with Mad World on it. That's all. The amazing thing was Capital Radio and all the radio stations were talking. People kind of go, what the hell's with this fucking pink duck I'm seeing everywhere? <laughs> so there's this mad, insane compact. It really didn't mean much, but people were talking about this. Yeah, I can be, I mean, trust me, you could spot this thing. It was fluorescent. You could see that thing coming hundreds of yards away. You're driving towards it and you're going, what the hell is that? Because that was in the days when you could fly poster all over London. Yeah. Um, so there's these massive things everywhere and people were talking about it. So eventually when it came to taking the single up to radio and everyone else, everyone's going, oh, mad world, boff. So there was, um, <laughs> there was this, you know, mad introduction. The great thing about that moment in time was there were a number of DJs on Radio 1 who were actually into the music. Although their shows were programmed by producers and therefore they had to play what the producers said, they were allowed two, three, four choices of their own. 
And fortunately, a few of them decided to start playing it. And before you knew it, we were on a playlist and then that was it. It was taking a life of its own. And we got to make a video. Was that after it was released and it was already generating buzz? It's like, okay, let's get a video out. Or was that yeah. suddenly, suddenly there was a buzz going. Suddenly there was this whole thing developing and the company recognized they had to jump on board fast and start catching up. That's when I got hauled in and went, okay, how long is it going to be before the album's finished? When's the next single? What's it going to be? Suddenly there was a whole different atmosphere and a whole different interest in this band because they, they, there was a buzz going now and there was building. And if this goes, there is a time frame of which you've got to, for production purposes, you know, we need to get the next one. What's the next one? Luckily, we had Chris had done because he loved Pale Shelter. We had done that in the Britannia Row session. So we did have a follow up. So we were ready to go. I mean, the whole thing became very, very fraught. I don't think Kurt and Roland enjoyed it as much as they would have liked. But, you know, we had to meet these days, you know, these deadlines because things work on a time cycle. You know, there's no alter in that. So there are timelines and there's a reason for it. These factories don't care. This is a system, you book this in here, it goes there, that'll come there. If you don't deliver this in time, you ain't coming out. End of story, you'll be back in a queue. It's no different than an AstraZeneca uh, shot. If you don't order now, you're not going to get the first. You'll be down the line. You, you're gonna, this is when you do it, you do it now. If you don't meet it now, you've had it. So, which is a different world than sitting with someone in a in a studio going, well, we need to get this done because we need to meet these deadlines. So you're saying they didn't particularly respond well to that pressure, but it was an unnecessary pressure you had to put on them. Yeah. And how much time would you be spending in the studio to check on their progress at this point? A lot. Daily. And what would that be? Would it be popping in saying, okay, let's listen to yeah, what we've been so It, it may mean um, spending uh, an afternoon down there or an evening down there. Sometimes, uh, you know, afternoon, evening, but it would be almost daily. Because uh, I had other things I had to do as well. I had by this time I'd signed a few acts, so there was yeah, but it was daily because you know there was this concern of getting this thing done. So we had songs, things were created in the studio. We by this time I think we'd moved up to Abbey Road. We had some we had some cheap time down at, up at Abbey Road, and so we were doing quite a lot of the work up there. But it was pretty fraught. Do you know what they did at Abbey Road? Because they played at the studio too, didn't they? Yeah, with the studio too, we did the penthouse. We did a lot of work at the penthouse. But why was there? Because I see there's Britannia Road Studios, Red Bus Studios, the penthouse yeah. studio to Abbey Road. So why were they working in so many different studios? Because that happened in Seeds of Love as well. They seem to like often be moving around from studio to studio. What was the thinking behind that? Um, well, at that time, when with, with the first record, we would only book so many days. There was also a thing of getting material together. And also studios, you know, operate quite long term. So we would have to fit in with whatever days were available. You know, and they could only work so many blocks at a time. And, and yet we were still trying, desperately trying to, you know, finish this thing. And therefore we were just going wherever we could. But we did a, most of it, I think, in, in Abbey Road, either in the penthouse or in, in Studio Two. OK. And in terms of your relationship with them at this time, were you seen as part of the gang or were you seen as the record company guy? Was it like kind of us and them between? Not, not at that time, because no. um, Kurt and I, at that time, were very close. We were very good friends at that time. I used to spend quite a lot of time with Kurt and his, at that time, girlfriend, Lynn. Um, I used to spend a lot of time with them. Roland was always more withdrawn, more private. He would spend a lot of time with his then-girlfriend, then later his wife, Caroline. So he, he and I got on OK, but Kurt and I were very close at that time. So would you be able to use your relationship with Kurt as a way of kind of say getting to Roland is the right way of putting it but a way of kind of to be fair to Kurt Kurt got understood Kurt was could sense there was a chance of some success here Kurt realized they had potential they actually believed in their potential and he could see what would have to be done to realize and fulfill that potential he was interested in that Kurt was the easygoing, charming, attractive frontman for Tears for Fears. And Kurt would go to the opening of an envelope. He just would be, he'd be there and he would be charming and he would do whatever was necessary because Kurt realised it, it's human instinct, it's animal instinct. If I do this, hmm, 
I might get this. Kurt really understood what was going on and he realised he had a, a good part he could play in that. Rodan was less interested in that and was more interested in his songwriting and, and, and his playing and noodling around. Kurt was quite interested in the in the other side. I mean, he he wanted to understand what, how does this work? What do we have to do? And as I say, Kurt and I were, were very close at that yeah. time. Yeah, so Roland would say that Kurt was much better at being a pop star than he was. Oh, R- Kurt was a pop star. In every way, he was a pop star. With all that implies. With everything that implies. Yeah, OK. So the actual recording of The Hurting within that nucleus of like Chris Hughes, Ross Cullum, Kurt and Roland, Ian Stanley, was there tension within that group as well making the album because of the pressure and did you ever see that manifest itself um really that, during the most recording because manny was involved at around about that yeah. time but most most of the time it was kurt and roland and chris and ross because yeah. ross played a, a, a very important role in that making of that album i mean they were there together on the shop floor the four of them all the time you know other people were were brought in and the development really of that time was it yeah Manny was involved and uh, Ian was just getting involved but it was it was mainly the four of them okay so there's a story that Kurt was in the toilet in tears because he just because he's been worked so hard getting a vocal I think it's for Pale Shelter so did you ever experience anything like that with that kind of like at the very limits of like I was with him in that toilet oh really so you remember that situation was it Pale Shelter that he was doing the vocal for it I, it it could have been. He was having trouble with a vocal and he ran downstairs and went in there and I went in after him. Uh, and he was just, you know, emotionally. It, it's very, very hard. If I don't know if, if most people have ever really thought about what it takes to perform. If you are in a studio room and you go into a vocal booth you are on your own in a soundproof booth which most soundproof booths are no bigger than four foot five foot by five foot so they're very small cupboards effectively sometimes you get a bigger booth but hey it's a small booth and it's soundproof and you've got headphones on so you've got no idea what people are talking about Mm. behind the glass you can see people talking and yeah. you can see head shaking and you can see and you can interpret anything you like because now you're getting paranoid. It will happen with most people. Somebody puts you in a booth with headphones on and you can't hear what's going on, but you've no idea what they're talking about or what they're saying or anything. The track comes on and you're supposed to instantly perform and get it bang on. It doesn't happen. There are some performers who can do it and they can do it 23 different ways. And they can sit there all day and not giving a shit because they, they're quite relaxed about it all but for most people it's it it's it's mentally tough Mm. and it's emotionally tough and if people are saying no that's not quite right and you don't know quite how to put it right although they may be offering advice like you could try it like this or you could do this or that bit's wrong or you're getting it wrong there that's a lot of stuff coming in and all you know is the track's about to start and you've got to get it right again and you try again and it doesn't work and you try again now how many times before you start doubting what you're doing and really starting to worry it doesn't take long and you've got the pressure of of a you've got to come up with hits b you've got to get finish an album and c you've got tv show you're doing keith harrison orville tomorrow and you're going to be doing it and you're going to do that so you you've got it under a lot so it's no surprise that you know because kurt really they're both sensitive really and they were both young so very young yeah yeah so yeah i had to go and find kurt uh, and and talk to him and and try to get him to calm down and and be able to sort of go back and face everybody and we did it's tough it was tough and in that scenario was Roland sympathetic to that was he encouraging or was it just like let's just let's get this done i mean what was the atmosphere in the studio like well there's you know, they've been friends for years. So this is putting a strain on their friendship. And when you've seen your friend go off, and, and of course you're going to feel something. You're going to feel angry for them. You're going to feel upset for them. You're going to be unsure what to do. And yet all of this thing is, you know, we've got to get this this done. So it's a whole world. And in, and in a way, you know, 
there but for the grace of God go I. So it could have been Roland. Roland would have acted differently, and he did act differently. How how would he have acted? He's he was more he I don't think he would have let anyone see him cry. He just was quite he wasn't gonna have that. No, keep it inside. But that's not a good thing either, so Yeah. Yeah. Maybe better it is to let it out. Tears for fears, eh? Yeah. Um okay, so in terms of um, track listing and getting the album put together and collated at the end, were you involved in that? Were you around for that? Yes. You take a, like, I think we should lead on this and, like, this should be the third single, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. So how does that work? Is that just you and Kurt and Roland or are you all kind of like a little committee kind of discussing it? Like, I mean, at what point was it called The Hurting? At what point did you have that concept? Oh, that, I, nothing, that, that's, that's entirely Roland and Kurt. And that's obviously based on their Yanoff and, and yeah. their understanding and, and their views. I think it was, you know, that was something that was probably formed even before I'd met them. So our first album was always going to be called The Hurting as far as they were. That, that would be, right. it got nothing to do with me, got everything to do with them. So, yeah, yeah I would imagine it, it was part of their manifesto. And in terms of the track listing of the album, I think there's ways you could possibly change the track listing for the other albums. But for that, The Hurting, I just can't imagine that album in any other order somehow. It just seems like it's just... Perfectly structured. Yeah. The Prisoner was never going to be the lead track. No. <laughs> yeah, he might have lost a few people. Yeah. Start of the Breakdown is not really an opening track. It's got to be a surely a final track. Lots of people believe that you should open an album with the, the big hit single. I have always taken the view of why the hell would you want to open up an album with something you've probably heard a million times already yeah. before you even bought it? This is dull. Don't I do that. Agree but you more. do need to have a... Uh, uh, friendly tracks in the first few otherwise yeah. you're going to be up against it there are lots of little weird things like the third track you know it, at that point people will decide whether they're going to buy it or not so there's that and it it kind of sort of just when you argue like that you it comes together quite quickly yeah so when the album comes out and it's a, a huge success and the, those three singles all hit top five What's the reaction from Kurt and Roland? Is it relief? Is it joy? Is it, oh, like, what's next? I mean, I assume you get really good feedback from the record company. So, like, you get some, like, pats on the back and thumbs up and keep going from the record company? Yeah, well, it's ever-evolving because the next thing is this was going on and you've got to get a live set together. You're going to have to go out and support this live. Yeah. So we need to put a band together. You need to rehearse. And you've got to do a 45 minute show but we need to take it to one hour we don't have an hour's worth of material we need to we, so we need to do 45 minutes and then we're going to have to start thinking about doing extended versions or whatever it is and by the way it's going to have to be good so now we need to go into rehearsals we need to play live we need to start worrying about who's going to do the out front sound because there's a lot of technical issues involved with this because we're using reel-to-reel machines and the synthesizers and they don't like staying in tune and there's all sorts of problems and okay we need lighting designers because you know they're, they're not exactly the most dynamic band running around uh, with lots <laughs> to watch we need to sort of do things with lights and we need to do you know create vibes and so that's got to go on oh and by the way it's starting to happen in ireland so therefore you're gonna to have to go to try and do the friday night tv show oh by the way germany's calling can we go and do something and can we and the japanese are interested and so yeah oh and by the way can we start writing the songs for the next record we need another single and we need another album so we need to start thinking about that oh and by the way you're going on tour with so-and-so so i mean roland would seem to start writing songs almost immediately because there were three songs from the next album that were played in 83 so i assume he already had material on the go for the next album Roland was always doing things, whether he would play them to us or, or, or what state they would be in or whatever, yeah. It's a very interesting period. The post-hurting, pre-big chair period is a very interesting one where they seem to lose direction a little bit. So you've got the way you are. So yeah. Roland has said in an interview that literally every song he had, there was, there was a push for it to be a single. Were you aware of that at the time that you were like, "What? Give me the, what's his next song? Okay, this could be a single. And you're constantly pushing for that single. I did not feel like that kind of pressure was coming from from you and the record company. Forget the record company. Uh, they they didn't deal with Roland and Kurt. They dealt with me, and they just would hassle me for something. They would never hassle the band. Once you're on a, a roll, if you look at if you look at the history of uh, career of say Madonna, um, there are other examples, but she's a good example. Um, 
or Michael Jackson or, or any of the big, big 70s, 80s stars, even you 2 or whoever, you will note that every three months they drop a single. Been doing that. People have been doing that for years. Beatles, everybody. There's always a drop of a, a regular drop of a, of a track of a single to keep momentum, to keep the attention, to keep the interest, to keep... That's pretty much the norm. Go and look at charts books. You'll know this by looking at the dates of the chart entries. It's pretty much every three months. So there is this uh, thing of, well, okay, the other side was, you know, don't forget everyone was shocked because Michael Jackson was the first person to have released five or six singles from an album. No one had ever really done that before. So you, you could do two or three singles, but then pushing beyond that, people never thought of doing that in those days. So beyond Madwell, Pearl, Shelter, Suffer the Children, Change, we were done. We needed another single because we'd got all this going. We've got nothing else going. We need to push the album, even if it's not on the album. The attention, being on the radio, being on TV, all of this, you know, we need to keep keep some kind of momentum going because if we can spin these plates, then maybe we can get another plate up, you know. And so maybe we could bring in France or Germany or Holland or we can get other hits elsewhere and maybe we can get this thing going. So the I could only ask, well, what have you got? And Roland can Kirk can blame me what they've got and either. It's like, well, that's good, but it's it's not a single. So that's okay. I mean, you can have it as an album track. You can do what you want with it. Or, you know, we could talk about what what, what it is and how it is. I mean, the, the, along the way, there were tracks that didn't make. You know? Can you think of the name of any off the top of your head? Or just you don't remember them anymore because it was so long ago? Some I don't remember. The one I do remember, I think there was, there was a couple for the songs from The Big Chair. There was a couple on there that we we, we took off. On this record, we were just, if you look at this record, this record was, as, as I said, it had to get out. So this is what we had. Now we were, we've got nothing. So um, was The Way You Are the first single you, or track you heard that you thought, okay, this has potential to be a single? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody thought this was the potential for a single. And of course, we went off to Rupert Hines studio to do it up there because it was residential. It meant everyone could get together and be together in one place and it's out in the country away from uh, all the madness that was going off. And it was fine, except it wasn't brilliant. Mm. It was it was good enough. Now, the problem with good enough is that's not good enough. So in retrospect, would you have still released that single? Would you said, let's start off for something that's better? Yeah, there's no way I would have put that out. It's certainly one of my least favourite. Yeah, me too. OK, so after that, it was Mother's Talk. and they. OK, well, the jump from that was... What that said to me was, okay, I th I think looking at the clock again, we're moving and the clock's moving around. And I don't know if we need another Fairlight type single, whether we need any more tracks like with, with that. Maybe this particular sound and this particular path is done. And maybe what we need to do is something a bit more robust and shocking. And, and I did have a discussion with Roland about the idea of doing something with a guitar and because you, you you used to play guitar and we went in to do he came up with mother's talk which i thought was great because it was a combination of electronica and electronics and good old-fashioned band and i think chris was busy doing something he got involved with something i can't remember what it was so he wasn't available and i had an idea which was i know the guy that's behind a lot of the stuff that duran duran are doing and duran were of course like the biggest band at that moment in time is the guitarist andy taylor and i know that he wants to do production let's get andy in which on pieces of paper that might seem reasonable the reality was something else so did that actually happen then did they actually meet up yep how far did it get we did some recording in victoria and that was not good. In what sense? Was it the personalities or just Yeah, everything. Break, really? Everything. Just didn't just didn't come together at all. So how long did that last for before it um Oh, two, three days. That's all. Okay. And I take it that was mutual on both sides, was it? Yeah, I guess. Certainly from our point of view. Okay. Certainly from my point of view, it just wasn't wasn't working. So we had we did have brothers talk. 
but it was not right. So we decided to wait for Chris. So Jeremy Green is also linked to... Jeremy Green. Yeah, we did it with Jeremy Green. Yes. That's it. Because he'd done been with The Clash. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, it was a disaster. So it was your instigation. Yeah, that's right. It's Jeremy Green, not... Not Andy. Not, yeah. Okay. But it'd been my idea because of The uh, the Clash thing, and I knew, um, I knew Bill and I knew Jeremy, and they'd done The Clash, and I just thought, okay, well, we could use Jeremy, but it was not a good idea. What was wrong with that version? Was it just not? No life to it. No life to it. I mean, yeah. you could have noise, but yeah. there's no life to it. Didn't feel right. Didn't sound right. It wasn't right. And of course, don't forget, he, you know, scrapping recordings is not really an option in those days. You know, so when someone says, "I'm going to have to scrap this," you're going to have to go and justify why. So Christie's, were they happy about going back to Christie's, or was it a sense of like we've done that already? Can we not try something different? Or were they? The stage where it's like we need to do something. We know where we are with Chris. Let's go back to Chris. I don't remember. As far as I was concerned, it was in a safe pair of hands. It's it worked. It it may not be as people develop and as they get older and they start having their own ideas and their own ambitions and their own thoughts and their own ideals and their own. Surely, Roland and Kurt probably wanted to do things. Hey. We want to do it. And you're going, well, no, I'm going to, I need somebody on the ship. But they did get on. You know, the thing is, to this day, they still get on. Mm. So something was right. And the blend of, of what was done for Mother's Talk was, it turned out to be exactly what we needed at that moment in time. It was not the biggest hit. No. But, yeah. But it was an improvement. It was a step in the right direction. It was a step in the right direction. And it, it showed the potential of where we could go. They're not some wimpy synth band. There's something going off here. And there's like a dance mix, which Chris, Ian and I did together. Um, there's you know, there's a number of things that that were different. Um, surely people would hear and see what was going on. And also my fixation with America that I thought this would actually appeal more to America than, than what we did before. The thing you have to remember, going back to the hurting was the Americans weren't that keen on releasing the hurting they were not that keen on the band and i had observed our american record company and therefore i twit i turned it around and went well you're not going to i don't want you to release it and i don't want the band to go there to do some poxy little club tour it's all a waste of time you'll do it half-heartedly no we're not coming you're not releasing it in fact what i'm going to do is i'm going to encourage exports so you'll have imports to deal with. Because at least with imports, people are buying it, and then there's a word of mouth. Yeah, there's makes some call. Yeah. So if you've got a word of mouth, that's better than some yeah. half-arsed, reluctant record label where they're paying lip service. You know what? Fucking don't pay me anything. All right. I'll let you know. Yeah, here's this cool UK indie band you can only get on import, and that's because it's a certain cachet then, yeah? And it, that, believe it or not, that was... I mean, as much as you can stand there and say that, you can say, well, I don't want you to release it. It's a waste of time. I don't want them to come over and do some bullshit club tour, you know, playing to college radios and stuff. Fuck off. Not interested. You know, we're busy. I'll see you. And that worked without design and by osmosis. It caused a creation of a, a vibe in California. It caused a vibe in upstate new york and up to boston and a few other places it caused a there was a you know thing out kids were finding it for themselves college radio was playing it by themselves the fact that no record company was it's even better yeah you haven't got some uncle twat turning up telling you what a great idea it is to play this record you know what i know it's a great idea to play this record i'm going to play this record the fact that no one can buy it is even cooler so that's doing it that's not my design that's no one's design it's kind of like a political situation and it suddenly developed on its own into this thing, which was good. We'll come back to that later, but that was good. And the band were moving and changing and there was this, they were still playing around with Fairlights and Junos and doing all the things that they love doing between Ian, Chris and Roland to their heart's content. But the guitars and drums came out. And that was kind of Chris Hughes's. Did you ever have a conversation with Chris about the direction forward? Because he wanted, to, he was like playing them Springsteen and Steely Down and trying to get them to broaden and 
and make a bigger sound. So is that you're both on the same page with that? Do you have discussions? But don't forget, we are as one. As you go back, well, you go way back, yeah. We come from the same school. We read the same hymn sheet. We like the same bands. We go and see those bands together. We know, yeah, we know. And you were the Blitz Brothers. And we were the Blitz Brothers. We were, um, yeah, we were very much on the same page. Uh, ZZ Top was another one uh, that we used to play them. And the fact that ZZ Top had just managed to use guitars and synthesizers and we're having a big hit. So, yeah, and I used to do cassettes of all the latest sort of things that I thought were great. And we used to send them up. Everyone would drive around listening to these cassettes. Yeah. Okay, so Mother's Talk got to number 14, which is an improvement. Um, so the record company at this stage, were they placated with that and as, as the, the second album was being made? Or is it, again, more pressure saying, like, they really need to come up with the goods for the third, you know? No, it's thing. not. It, 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 it's a different thing. And also there was a different setup because the label had changed. The record company had changed. So the old guard had gone and the new guard were in. And I was part of the new guard. And therefore, it was a different environment. It became I was the record company. Not There was no amorphous sort of blob somewhere with behind-the-scenes Wizard of Oz type thing. I could now go back to the record company, which would be all my colleagues, and go, okay, this is what we're doing. It's a different ballpark. And one of the things I said was, like, I absolutely believe that this was going to be a huge record and I, I i thought we were going to go in the right direction and as the album was progressing i mean the one thing that i needed more than anything i knew we had shout i knew we had head over heels we had enough things on there but we were missing the drive time hit i need a drive time hit i need that and the drive time hit is it's the song in america and it's the song here really it's the one where you're driving to work or driving going home it's the one you play between four o'clock and six o'clock or seven o'clock and nine o'clock in the morning. And it's it's the one where you tap the wheel as you're stuck in traffic or you're driving down a completely open road. And it's the one where it makes you feel great and you want to sing along or you just want to tap along and you pull your windows down and you stick your arm out of the, the <laughs> thing and you're having a great time and it makes you feel good. You need that uplifting moment you don't want some dirge you want something that makes you feel free something that makes you happy something that makes you feel good and it's it's that hit where people just put it straight on in those hours because it's the one they know their audience are going to be going for now to become a drive time hit given that they've got a whole catalog of previous drive time hits to squeeze yourself in there as a new song is always tricky but if you can get into that past your dire straits, past your Rolling Stones, past your U2, if you can fight your way through all these big hits and get yourself into that, that's the biggest audience. That's the biggest audience that any radio station is judged by. So that's the slot you want to get into because you're not dealing with 2,000 people listening at night under the covers. You're dealing with 200,000 people, 2 million people, whatever it is. It's the big, big slot. And it's the hardest one to get into. And I was missing that track. Didn't have it. I figured Shout was going to be a big hit. I figured Head Over Heels was going to be a big hit. But I didn't have what we needed. Did you and think that, that Shout was going to be a big hit in America? Yeah. You were sure, even from the beginning, even before yeah. the world was released, really? Yeah. And I'll tell you about a conversation I had with the American company, which also changed by this point. And they, at the last minute, they all went off. Roland had come up with this little fucking riff. Somehow they managed, Chris and Dave Bascom and Ian had managed to capture that little bit, put some drum loops to the whole thing, and suddenly they were building this track up. And I was reminded that Caroline Orzable was the one that went, this is amazing, this is, this is fantastic. And, you know, Roland is not different from anybody else. If somebody says something's great that you're doing, it makes you feel good. So therefore, you'll actually look at that and that's mine. So, and it's also the key point because, you know, Roland was doing more and more, but Kurt still came up with the odd gem. There's no doubt. I mean, Kurt was always there. When you were stuck with something, Kurt could be the one that would just go sit at the back of the room and go, 
Everybody wants to rule the world. That's it. You're saying that it was Kurt that came up with that? Yeah, I believe so. Wow. Okay. So you did like a Sow in the Seeds of Love thing. Basically, he sung the hook. Yep. Did the same for Sow in the Seeds. Yeah. He got credited for Sow in the Seeds. He didn't get credited for Rule the World. Right. Not my problem. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. But my understanding is it was Kurt that came up with that. That's my understanding. So wait, so Roland... I'm happy, I can, I'm happy to be wrong okay, uh, no. and corrected, but at the same time, I don't want it to go on if, if Kurt's not getting... Kurt came, Kurt came up with little things. And of course, Kurt was the one that sang it. So originally Roland said he wrote it as everyone's gone to war, everyone's going to war, some of that, everyone wants to go to war. Did you hear that? I've heard that recently, but I didn't hear that at the time. I, that's not what I heard had happened, but you know. So they had the title of the song, but not actually, it wasn't actually as part of the melody. And then Kurt sang it over the backing track one day. And just, as far as I know. That's amazing. Okay. Can you give any other examples of when Kurt contributed something that was on the finished record? Um, he's done it before. And he's, he did it afterwards as well. I can't think of another one, but, you know, Kurt does come up with these little gems every so often. Right. He sits at the back of the room and then suddenly he comes out with something. Oh, that's amazing. So for Big Chair, was he, how often was he there in the studio? Not as often. He bought a place out in North Raxall, outside, way out of Bath. Bugger to get to. And if you were working till three o'clock in the morning, complete bugger to get to. <laughs> um, but it was also that that Chris, Ian, Dave Bascom and Roland were more the creative nucleus at that point. I mean, Ian became more essential. And then we were doing, we were doing it in Ian's house, for fuck's sakes, you know. Yeah. Um, and that became, you know, so Ian was there, Chris was uh, there, Bascom was there. It was like, you know, they were on site, very much them. And then I would come down every few days to see what was going on. And I used to drive either along the A4 and then switch up to North Road, or I'd come in on the M4, come through town, and then switch up and go up North Road. And the reason I'm telling you this is because I now live 200 yards away from North Road. Right. And I can see Ian's old house from the back of my house. <laughs> <laughs> it's a small world. This is the end of the first part of the interview. Thank you. So thank you to David for the interview. And uh, thank you for Carol as well for setting it up. I, I just want to end by mentioning I got my first one-star review on iTunes. It's always a special moment, that, I think, when you get your first one-star review. It's from Autobahn with three A's from Ireland. I'll, I'll, read, I'll read it out. Uh, waste of an 80s pop podcast idea, one star. Uh, four dots. Well, there's your first mistake. You don't use four ellipses, use three. I've tried three episodes. I won't do it with an Irish accent, don't worry. I've tried three episodes of this podcast, and it's just a nightmare to get through. It's rammed, capital, rammed, with jarringly idiotic puns, <laughs> wacky clips, and childish humour. Not in a good way. Well... Thank you for your contribution. Ow, to bum with three A's. A lot to unpack there. Let's take it one criticism at a time. I've tried three episodes of this podcast, and this is the bit I don't get. I, I don't think that's funny. I think that's shite. I'm going to check out another episode. I think that's shite too. I'm going to check out a third episode. I think that's shite. I'm going to try the next 15. I think they're all shite. Anymore, I'm going to listen to them all because I think they're shite. Shut the fudge bucket up. Now, I've listened to podcasts where I didn't like it or I didn't find it particularly funny or amusing, and it's supposed to be. And you know what? I've kind of lasted about 15 minutes, including a Tears of Fears one. It's not, not their fault. They were being interviewed, and these, these American guys, and they thought it was really funny, and it's, oh, it irritated me. And I, and I turned it off. Do you know what I didn't do? I didn't listen to three fucking episodes, you know? <laughs> now I'm going to get through. Uh, it's rammed with jarringly idiotic puns. I, I can't really, yeah. I'll accept that one. Wacky clips. Wacky clips, yeah. I hate the wacky clips too, you know? No shit. They're a pain in the ass. 
Well, excuse me! You know, to think of them. Kiss my ass, sugar! To find them. Here come two words for you. Shut the fuck up. To download them. Do you know something? You disgust me. To edit them. They wax as high as any roll! To edit them into the episode. You kiss my ass quick! Yeah, I hate the wacky clips too. Your move, creep. With you on that one. And childish humour, guilty as charged. <laughs> and not in a good way. Well, ow, Taban. I don't know, how can you possibly get so irate about an 80s music podcast? I don't think he treats 80s music with the solemnity and respect it deserves. I don't know, maybe this person has no sense of humour. Maybe I have no sense of humour. Maybe maybe he or she watches Mrs. Brown's Boys. I, I don't know. You know. I don't get paid doing this. It costs me money every month to do this. I'm just a working person like everybody else. This costs me every month. You know what this is? It's the world's smallest violin. It's money I don't have, but I do it for the love of it. Because I love 80s music, I want to share it with people. And if you don't like it, just shut the flame retardant up, you know? Because I don't get many ratings or reviews. I'm happy with the numbers, but I don't get many ratings and reviews. So every bad one makes a difference. Right? It's hard enough getting this out to people that having a one-star review is going to like... Because I've seen it myself, the podcast. If I say one one-star review, I think, oh, it must be at least a little bit shit and not bother. So just, just focus on the positive. Some people just delight in being as negative as possible and bringing people down. I remember this person I work with and I was doing these, trying to do these kids' books for my kids. I've written these stories. No, I'd administrated and I'd ask people at work is there anybody can do illustrations. And this guy had done this drawing of this teddy bear in red pyjamas. It was a beautiful drawing. And I had it as my desktop. And this woman that sat next to me looked at it and said, what, what was that? And I said, oh, this guy did it for me. And she said, oh, he must have a lot of time on his hands. And I was thinking, that's your take on that. Not, wow, what a beautiful illustration. What a talented guy. He must have a lot of time on his hands. Are you related? Ow, to bam with three A's. That's where I went wrong. I think, I think I'll, I'll call myself out to bam with three A's because that's wit. That's the level of wit I wish you'd aspire to. Uh, uh, I've just got one thing to say to you, ow, to ban. Take off! Yeah. Said with love. It can, it can get you down a bit. So, um, yeah, there'll be... Actually, there will be another episode next week because it's the second part of the David Bates interview and that's definitely worth listening to. It's really good. Um, <laughs> that. Uh, should we end with a song? Yeah, with a song. Bye. You're the bee in my bonnet. You're the soap in my eye. You're the run in my stocking You're the cloud in my sky You're the fall in my arches You're the water on my knee You're the moth in my cedar chest And the shark in my sea You're the hitch in my zipper You're the crack in my glass You're the tax in my income you're the pain in my, the hurricane in my, super sensitive heart, dear. Still, I love you, I know. And the reason is merely because you irritate me so. You fascinate me. You devastate me. Because, my dearie, you irritate me so. You're the fly in my ointment You're the frog in my throat You're the weed in my garden You're the leak in my boat You're the bats in my belfry You're the pebble in my shoe You're the ball in my china shop You're the mouse in my stew You're the knock in my engine The rust in my gear you're the ache in my tummy 
You're the pain in my, the hurricane in my super sensitive heart, dear. Still, I love you, I know. And the reason is merely because you irritate me so. You fascinate me, you devastate me. Because, my dearie, you irritate me so. You irritate me so. You irritate me so. <laughs> what did you talk about, Willis? <laughs> <laughs>